Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this glorious book of Isaiah, uh, the amazingly powerful prophecy that was given to your servant uh, Isaiah that he gave uh, to the people of Judah in judgment as they look forward to uh, the the, the judgment falling in their exile in Babylon and as they look forward to the time after that where you will bring them back and that you restore them. And we thank you that over these uh, few months we've been able to be so impacted by by firstly, strong words of your judgment, uh, but then also by a tremendous message of hope that we can have uh, in you, our God, the only God who can save. And we pray that you continue to speak to us today as we go through a, a difficult passage to understand, uh, but a beautiful passage uh, that ends in, in the spirit-filled one uh, who is able to bring in your favor. Uh, we thank you that uh, already many of us know who he is, and many of us have experienced his transforming work in our lives. And so we pray, Father, as we look into your word today, uh, that you continue to um, give us that great rejoicing and great hope uh, in what you're doing in us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder, let's look around, um, how many of you are optimists and how many of you are pessimists when it comes to the, your Christian walk, right? Your, your, your view of yourself and your ability to change and be transformed in the faith. Uh, so if you're an optimist, uh, it feels like your transformation will definitely happen. Uh, yes, it will be slow at times, uh, but you're expecting breakthrough moments, even miraculous moments of change, where you'll grow greatly right, in your faith and in your walk. If you're a pessimist, you'll feel like uh, true and lasting change comes really hard. It takes a long, long time. Maybe it will never come. Okay? So that's the kind of uh, A or B. So let me just do a quick poll, okay? A bit of uh, audience interaction. Who feels like you're an optimist when it comes to your Christian walk? Put your hand up. Optimists have very nice, highly raised hands. Yep. And who are those who are pessimistic about your Christian walk? Oh, okay. So hmm, a lot of optimists here. Who, who swings wildly, or not wildly, but who swings between the two? Sometimes pessimists, sometimes optimists. Okay, the pessimists are also the swinging ones, and the rest are just pure optimists. Okay, that's great. Interesting. Interesting. I'll, I'll compare to the second service and let you know next week. Right? It's about 80% optimists, about 20% pessimists from what I can roughly tell. Okay, interesting. Now, whatever it is, I think even for the optimists among us, we would agree that the Christian experience is a frustrating one. It's a, a frustrating one. Sometimes we feel like we're making such good progress, we're experiencing tremendous God-given change. At other times, we feel a bit depressed or maybe very depressed and despondent uh, that we can't change and that we won't change. Uh, And even worse still, that we're going backwards, that we're failing. And we might wonder, why is it like this? Is it supposed to be the normal Christian experience? Now, in our second last sermon in this series, we'll be exploring these questions. What is the the experience of, of, of life as a believer? Uh, and what we're looking at in this passage is, is a big section, right? We're going to skim through it. We're really only going to be looking at a few verses of these nine chapters that we're looking at this morning. Now, the context is really important for us to, to, to understand uh, so we can get the main point, okay? So Isaiah prophesies in between two very defining moments, okay? Two extremely defining moments. Uh, the first of these moments uh, is salvation, right? So hopefully this will work. We've seen that, right? Over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, we've worked through Isaiah 40 to 55, uh, where we've been talking about the promise of salvation. Firstly, 
nationally from Babylon through the anointed King Cyrus, and then secondly, secondly from uh, sin uh, through the promised suffering servant, right, who will bring about our forgiveness. So that's all been promised, and, and it's kind of happening, right? And on, on the other side, uh, chapter 55 to 56, sorry, 65 to 66, which we're looking at next week, so the end of the bracket, uh, we've got the new heavens and the new earth, right? Many of you might know that passage. Uh, and it talks about the full and final, final salvation that will come at the end of time. Uh, so what we have in these uh, chapters is kind of the in-between, right? The now and the not yet. The now, the situation sounds like they've been saved out of Babylon, right? And they're now living in Babylon. But their sin hasn't been forgiven yet, right? Not fully forgiven because the suffering servant hasn't come to do that ministry, right? Salvation and righteousness and peace that's been promised uh, is not yet fully realized, now, if you open up chapter 56, verse 1, you'll see that, okay? So if you open your Bibles, Isaiah 56, verse 1, um, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed, right? So God gives instruction for them to live in a righteous, godly way. Um, and it seems, like, as you read on, they are rescued from Babylon, salvation, but they're not yet fully saved, right? Salvation is still to come, it's still to be fully revealed, Okay, so that's the context in which we're dealing with. Now, these uh, nine chapters describe the kind of struggles and hopes facing Israel in this now and not yet period. As we go through these nine chapters, we'll see the grim reality of their untransformed spiritual lives. Right? And we'll also see the hope that drives them on. Uh, the struggles and hopes of these nine chapters are very much similar to ours, Right? Uh, we too have experienced a very similar thing where right now we have uh, received in the past salvation, right? That's revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we too are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth that is to come where the gospel is fully applied, full and final salvation, righteousness, and peace. And we are living in that now and not yet period, right? In the middle. Right now, right, we, are fully, we are forgiven from sin. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But we know that we're not perfect yet, are we? We, we haven't yet experienced the full experience uh, of salvation. Now, the New Testament calls this period that we live in now the last days, right? In between the first coming of Jesus and his return. And in these last days, we'll also face the grim reality of untransformed spiritual lives, just like Israel. But there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. The spirit-filled king Savior and conqueror has already come, right? The, the, the spirit-filled one has been promised, has come, right, in our past. And that drastically impacts our present, even though there will still be struggles. There will be a huge difference compared to what we read in these chapters for Israel, right? So let's get into it, okay? Now, I want us to start at the beginning of the section, uh, sorry, the end of the section, uh, to the cry of the people living in this tension, right? For Israel living in this tension, uh, this section we're looking at ends with this a heartfelt cry, a prayer, right? Lament, confession. Now let's pick it up from verse 7, chapter 63, uh, verse 7. You see this frustration, right? 63, 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. 
Right? So here we have Isaiah praying a prayer, not just for himself, but on behalf of the people. Right? And here he's recounting and remembering and rejoicing in the salvation that has happened. Right? So chapter 40 to 55 stuff. They're a saved people. Uh, they know that God loves them and that he's adopted them back as, as rebels, uh, back into becoming his children. But then the prayer goes on. And it's a way, the confession of ongoing sinfulness, right? Verse 17, chapter 63, verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And as you read on, right, into chapter 64, you'll see, you know, he, he cries out, right, that you will split apart the heavens and the earth and come down and, and fix our brokenness, right, fix our problems. And for a little while, they had gone well, right? They were faithful. They had been God's people living back in, in a safe place, having been rescued from Babylon, but they've returned back to their old habits, returned back to being the rebels that they used to be. Now, as we, we continue on to listen in Isaiah's prayer, like I said, chapter 64, we're struck uh, that his, uh, he's got this longing right, for true and lasting transformation. And, and we're struck by the questions that, that Isaiah asks of God in this prayer. Right? He, he's asking, like, well, what hope is there? What hope is there for a people who keep on sinning? How can God keep those, uh, help those who keep running back into the filth and dirt after having been cleansed, right? How will God fix this broken record that keeps skipping, right? Where, where, where the, the tyranny of sin and rebellion keeps rising up like it always has. Isaiah was right to lament and pray to, to God to do something, right? They're back from Babylon, but they still seem so far from God. As we turn back to the beginning of the section, we'll see how Isaiah kind of explains this. He ends the section with a lament of prayer, but he begins by cataloging the sins, the struggles. So back to chapter 56, verse 9, right? 56, verse 9. Now, Isaiah begins this lament of this section uh, by by looking at the reality, uh, lamenting at the reality of untransformed leadership, untransformed leadership. The problems begin at the top. As has always been the case for, people of, uh, for the people of God, right? It always begins from the top. The leaders of God's people are supposed to be like watchmen uh, who watch over and guide the people of God. But we find out in these few verses that they are blind, right? Spiritually blind, as they have always been. And they are without knowledge. These leaders are, are useless guard dogs that don't bark but stay asleep, right? It's a strong imagery, right? They're like useless guard dogs, God doesn't bark, what uses are they? They just have a doormat, aren't they? Uh, Rather than giving their lives in loving service of God's people, to teach them and to build them up and to protect them, these leaders, they serve themselves. Now for Israel, this is the same story has been played over and over in their past, isn't it? Right from the beginning, the leaders of God's people have always failed to, to lead and care for God's people. And it's a sad reality that, that even through the early church, through the, the, the last 19, 20 centuries up to today, we continue to see this case that there is an untransformed leaders 
that have plagued the church. So much of the New Testament uh, is devoted to warning us about false and destructive teachers from within the church. You know how much, if you've ever flipped through the New Testament, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, John's writings, uh, I don't know, I've had a guess, I would say about 20% is devoted to warning against false teachers. Not just out there in the world, but within the church, wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, in this period of the now and not yet, we also need to deal with the sad reality of untransformed leadership and their damaging effects. That's a reality. Now, one of these effects is leading people into untransformed worship, right? Untransformed leaders leading people into untransformed worship, right? That leads to destruction. Chapter 57, right? Like I said, a couple of verses per chapter. We're going to skim through this quickly, okay? 57 verse 1. All right, in chapter 57 verse 1, we see uh, this is, you know, lament that the righteous man perishes and that the devout men and women are taken away, right? People who earnestly want to seek God are being led astray and being led into destruction. Right? The leaders are at fault, right? You kind of ignore the chapter heading sometimes and the, the chapter numbers, right? It's just a flaw one effect, right? Untransformed leadership leads to good people wanting to seek God being led astray and being destroyed. The leaders have to take responsibility, but the, the people are at fault as well. As you read through the chapter, you'll see that idolatry is allowed to flourish, Right, maybe because the leaders don't say anything or don't do anything or they're a bad example. Or maybe because, as we know, in, in the heart of every believer is this tendency to want to worship other gods. We see this in chapter 57. They, they worship at special trees, at high places. You see that there's a continual reliance on foreign alliances. Uh, and no matter how much God showed the people uh, of the worthlessness and the idiocy of worshipping idols... God's people kept going back to it, right? We see this all through the Old Testament, and we still see it today. The temptation to worship idols never goes away, does it? There's so much in Scripture that warns us against that. And it has to, because the idols of these worlds are tempting. They they, they give us a quick fix uh, to purpose and pleasure. It promises to give us what we envy in the people around us, right? Like I said last week, or two weeks ago, the reason we bother to worship idols is because they seem to work, right? People seem to have success when they worship their careers and they, and they worship their, 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 their foreign gods. We've got to take the big perspective, but we, we find it hard to not be lured in by the false promises of idols. Even though God's people have received salvation, even though we are convinced that idol worship is utterly worthless and stupid, we still struggle and succumb, don't we? Now, in this period of the now and not yet, the reality is that our worship of the true God keeps being tainted by our worship of false so-called gods. Right? It's now and not yet. Our worship of the true God keeps being tainted uh, by worship of false gods. But it gets worse. Right? Israel doesn't just worship false gods. They're also trying to worship the true God in false ways. Right? Okay, so there's, there's, there's worship of false gods. There's worship of the true God, but in false ways. Chapter 58, verse 1. All right, so if it helps for you to flip your Bibles, turn the page. I know there's a few people tired looking today. It's, it's the perfect weather for sleeping in this weekend, isn't it? Okay, let's just actually, let's, let's get, stand up for a second. Everyone stand up. I see a lot of sleeping faces today, more than normal. 
Run up on your feet. The Lord says, no, he doesn't say that. I say, okay, you need to have a stretch, can I have a stretch? I feel tired too. I'd be sleeping in too if I didn't have to do this. So I understand. Right, no judgment. All right, sit back down. Okay. Potter stuff. All right. Chapter 58, verse 1. Okay. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Right, you hear the word I emphasize there? It's as if, as if kind of worship, right? It looks only, right? It seems to be, it's, it's hypocrisy. It's as if worship. You see in verse 2, they, they sought God daily, right? They, they did their quiet times, right? They listened to their worship music. And they went to the temple, right? They sat under the teaching of the priests. You know, it says that they asked of God what his righteous judgments were, what his, what his way of life was like. And they, they delighted even in their hearts to draw near to God. They wanted to be there, right? It wasn't that they were forced to by their parents, like some of you are, right? Then in verse 3, they, they fasted. Right? They, they, they withheld from eating food, right? To, 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 urge their, to, to aid their prayers, to join in to God. In verse 13, we're told that they kept their Sabbath holy. In looks and in sounds, it sounded like awesome worship, wasn't it? Perfect worship. It wasn't just religious actions that they were doing in these verses. It was religious desires as well. It wasn't just outward showing. There was a desire in their hearts. But it wasn't perfect at all. Far from it. And we're told that desire to draw near to God and learn, yet they did not obey. There was a desire to learn, but they did not obey. In verse 2, they were as if people who wanted to, to live righteously, but they actually forsook their God. Right, they have a desire, right? Being, being sincere isn't enough. Right, there's no change. Their religious practices were actually self-serving, right? Verse 3, it was for their own pleasure. It was to look better than others. In verse 6 and 7, their religious pursuits were not matched by true justice. Right, they look good on Sundays, basically, but Monday to Saturdays, it's like everybody else in the world. Now, these words were directed to Israel 2,700 years ago, but they could just as well have been directed straight to us, isn't it? Now, for me, let me tell you a story about myself. Right? From the age of 12, I have pretty much attended church every single week, uh, almost without fail. Right? Maybe on, the, on my hand, right? Uh, I think on the honeymoon Sunday after we got married, we didn't go to church. Right? Sorry. Um, and I don't know, maybe when I was sick in hospital one time, I had broken rib. I couldn't preach, so I didn't come. There's not time. I don't know, maybe about three, three or four times. Right? I have been to church in the last 28 years. And not only that, I've attended YF and various other fellowship and cell and community groups. I've been reading my Bible pretty regularly, uh, seeking God in His Word. I pray and I serve. I would even say that a lot of times I delighted in doing all those things. Right? It wasn't just a chore. I delighted in those things. Yet, as I look back on the past 28 years, 
I can also say for sure that my motives were often terrible. Right? Sometimes I did godly things so that God would reward me with what I really wanted. Uh, sometimes I was like a, a student, you know, sucking up to the teacher to get good marks. Uh, and also other times I went to church for the girls, right, when I was younger, right, you know, mixed motives, a lot of attractive people around. Uh, why not go to church? Sometimes I served because I wanted to be seen uh, to be like the big kids. You know, I was always this young kid hanging around with the older kids, like Rutan and Amanda and Daniel, right? I didn't like hanging around people my own age, too immature, too childish. I wanted to be seen with the big kids, right? And to be like a leader like them, right? To, to dress up in their cool clothes and, and drive in their cool cars. It wasn't because I necessarily wanted to serve like they did. Not only bad motives, though, right? Over these 28 years, there's also been a lot of bad behavior. Bad behavior. My Sunday worship didn't match my Monday to Saturday life. My 15 minutes, right, on average, Bible time each day, didn't make much of a difference to the other 14 awaking hours of my life. Right? I would curse and swear and complain and criticize, just like all the friends around me. I was often selfish, especially towards my family. I was lazy and undisciplined in my work. I would splurge on purchases driven by greed and materialism. And I could go on. Right? 28 years, there's a lot of data right, to be able to share with you about how I did exhibit worship, right? practices as well as desires, but also so much falseness in the way I went about worshipping the true God. Now, if you're honest with ourselves, if you made the effort to conduct a thorough self-examination, I think you would know that your worship of the true God has falseness in it as well. Motives and behaviors that just don't match with true worship of God. Now and not yet is plagued by this untransformed worship, isn't it? Now, untransformed worship was just part and parcel of Israel's untransformed lives. It wasn't just the religious lives that were the problems, because their Monday to Saturday, their entire lives were a problem. Now, we won't look much into the next chapter, chapter 59. It just continues on uh, in much the same vein, right? The people of God, saved and forgiven, continue to struggle so badly with sin. Right, let me just read the first couple of verses here. 59 verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then, in the following six verses, we get this another catalog of sins. Right? Violence, lies, injustice, evil plotting employees, creating strife, destroying peace, walking in darkness. And we wonder, as we read on and on, can these people really be the people of God? Right? Such untransformed lives that they have. And then we realize, once again, that we're not that much different, are we? What a depressing set of affairs, right? Is this what the safe life is supposed to look like? Right? Is this period of now and not yet just no different to the pre-saved life? What hope is there for the people of God? What hope is there for transformation? Now, as we move on to chapter 60, the gloomy darkness of seeming hopelessness gives way to a, a blinding and glorious light. And before we do that, I need to drink some milk, actually. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a gastric issue, so it's one of those weeks. So before we get into glorious light, I need to get some light relief. So just give me a minute, and we'll be getting on. 
Have a look through chapter 60. Can I read verse 1 and 2? Read it first. Thanks, Winnie. In case you didn't notice, my name is on there. So if you go to the cupboard, you know, trying to find some milk for yourself, please uh, don't take mine. <laughs> uh. All right. Hopefully it will kick in in the next few minutes, uh, but we will press on, okay? Uh, chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now, if you've been reading on in these chapters from 56 onwards, this is a very surprising chapter. Right? Kind of seemingly out of nowhere, the instruction given to the people in darkness is to shine. Right? It's been so depressing, right? The last few chapters, and suddenly, shine. Right? Shine, for your light has come, is the instruction of chapter 60. But we see as we read on that the people of God shine not with a light of their own, because there is no light, right? They live in darkness. They shine with the light of God's glory. And what is needed is for the glory of the Lord to rise upon them, to rise upon us. What we need is the glory of God to be seen in us, or, or, or more accurately, to be reflected of us. There's nothing that's light within us. So we need to be like a mirror that reflects God's light. Now it will be a light that will draw all peoples from all nations to worship God, right? Such a transformation happens to God's people that the nations flock to God, right? Into God's city because of the light of God's people. This, was the, this, this is the picture of God's glorious future that we saw all the way back in chapter 2. If you were here around about two months ago, and you're going to read it, chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, right at the beginning uh, of this book, there was this glorious picture of, of the heavenly Mount Zion where it would be such a glorious light that the nations will flock right, to worship. Somehow, God's people will go from this untransformed life of gloomy sinfulness to becoming a light to the nations, shining forth the glory of God. And the question we've got to keep asking ourselves is, how can this happen, right? How will this amazing transformation come about? Isaiah 61, right, is the glorious answer to this question. Isaiah 61. Transform transformation is made possible by the work of the one who is spirit-filled. Right? In a way, it's kind of like this milk that's transforming my insides right at the moment, right? It's just... Feel a lot better now. Thanks. Anyway, chapter 61, verse 1. Okay, let's just see how this transformation comes about. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord, uh, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, 
that he may be glorified. Right, so chapter 61 comes in, and, and then someone speaks, right? You can tell it's a different voice, isn't it? It's a different person. It's not Isaiah, right? We, we've, we've met this spirit-filled person before, haven't we? We've met this spirit-filled person before. Back in chapter 11, we met the one who is a spirit-filled king, right, who is like a little shoot that grows out of the cut-down stump that is Israel, this, this spirit-filled king who will come and rise up to be the almighty ruler, sounds like God himself, right? The almighty king. Then in chapter 42, a couple of weeks back, we met the spirit-filled servant who suffers in the place of sinners to restore righteousness and peace. Spirit-filled king, chapter 11. Spirit-filled servant, chapter 42. And here, we meet him again. The spirit-filled king and servant is now pictured as a conqueror a conqueror who brings about a glorious transformation. He brings about the much-needed overturning of this constant and consistent defeat. And of course, he is the secret weapon that Israel needed. Right Right in the middle of all this gloom of these nine chapters, he is the secret weapon that Israel needed. Without this spirit-filled conqueror, transformation would not be possible. Now, the secret weapon Israel needed is no longer secret, is he? Because we know who he is. As we went through the last few months, we know, right, Isaiah is pointing us to Jesus because we have the privilege of living 2,700 years after this was written, after these prophecies have been fulfilled in the one and only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right in Luke chapter 4, as we heard before, Jesus grabbed a scroll, actually he was given the scroll, of the prophet Isaiah, and he turned to this very part of Isaiah, and he read out these very verses, and then he closed it up, and then he said, today, right? In the first century AD, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The secret weapon that Israel didn't yet have as they struggled with their untransformed lives That spirit-filled conqueror has come. We have his ministry now, and it makes all the difference. It's the huge difference between Israel's constant and consistent inability to be transformed and the certainty of our transformation. The total difference. They had no hope of changing from their constant and consistent sinfulness and untransformed lives, contrasting with our certainty of being transformed in the Lord Jesus. Our experience of life in the now and not yet, of being saved but awaiting final salvation, is similar in that we struggle, but it's completely different in that we can have hope of transformation now as we wait for His return. But the Spirit-filled King, Savior, and Conqueror has come. Salvation has been won. Transformation has begun. Now, as we look at these three verses, I want to unpack it, right? Just, just a few of these elements in these three verses uh, to show the transformation power that's been unleashed through Jesus, right? So let's begin with, with how the Spirit-filled one comes to bring good news to the poor. Right? The first thing he does is good news to the poor. Now, we're not talking about financially poor here, of course. As much as how people, uh, people want to say about this, it's not about being financially poor, right? We're talking about spiritual poverty, which is a far worse kind of poverty, the, the kind of spiritual poverty that we've been looking at chapter after chapter in Isaiah, right? 
It's a kind of spiritual poverty that we ourselves have experienced in the past. It's the experience of humanity in sin and in shame and in separation from God. That's what spiritual poverty is, isn't it? It's to be, to be completely defeated by sin, to be ashamed before God and to be separated from God. Isaiah had cried out to God, lamenting that the separation of the separation that sin has caused between us and God. But with the coming of Jesus, that is not true anymore. But the amazing good news is that in Christ, nothing can separate us from God. You know, when, 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 when Isaiah cried out, why are we separated from you far away, right? In chapter 63, in his prayer, we don't pray that anymore. We never lament in our prayers of confession that we are separated from God because in Christ, we have been reconciled. Nothing can separate us from God. In our struggle against sin, we do not experience spiritual poverty. Do you hear that? In our struggle against sin as believers, we do not struggle, we do not experience spiritual poverty because we are no longer separated from God by sin We are no longer living in shame before God, unable to come into God's presence. The good news of the gospel is that we have been enriched with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In our struggle in the now and the not yet, we never cease to be rich with the identity of Christ as beloved children of God, as God's precious and sanctified people. The good news to the poor is that we are no longer in spiritual poverty in Christ. But there's more. What what else did Jesus come to do according to these verses? He comes to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up is to, to put together hearts that have been broken, broken lives back together. Now in Japan, uh, there is this... um, uh, art form called uh, Kinsu Kuroi. Right? Maybe some of you might know it. Or Kinsugi. Here's another way of, uh, of talking about it, which means to repair with gold. Who's ever seen this before? Yeah, you see, okay, cool, cool. Culturally aware people, that's great. Uh, it's basically the art form where, where the Japanese would take a broken bowl or a pot uh, and, and, uh, and this artisan would, would put the pieces together uh, using gold or silver lacquer to create something stronger, something more beautiful than before. If you go and search on the internet, you'll see these beautiful gold ones where, where these, these earthen vessels are put back together beautifully with all these gold lines, right, working as a glue, bringing them back all together, something, something broken, something that has been dishonored, something that has been wasted, becoming restored into something beautiful again. Right? That's, just, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And even better than putting shattered bowls Back together is Jesus putting shattered lives and shattered people back together. Shattered lives and shattered people back together. You know, Israel's despair, it is not our despair. Right? Jesus, the Spirit-filled one, fills us with His Spirit. Gives His Spirit to dwell in us, to repair us from the inside out. Now, so many of us have such wonderful stories to tell of how our lives have been transformed ever since we've come to put our faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and as we submitted our lives to Him as our Lord. Some of us have done things in our lives in the past that we thought made us broken beyond repair. I know people who were who were who were who were just who lost so much money, right, in gambling. People who had who had given over themselves to 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 prostitution and, and drugs. I know people who have been in damage in, in so many ways because of what they've done to themselves or because of the abuse that they faced right, from other people. Some have been betrayed and neglected. They've been treated with faithlessness. Some have experienced self-inflicted wounds of self-loathing and bitterness and envy. In in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, there is brokenness caused by ourselves or by the people around us. And yet in Christ, so many of us have experienced great healing, haven't we? So many of us have been able to find a way to forgive our enemies, those who have treated us and broken us. We have begun to feel whole again. Sometimes it has been slow, And other times, it has been nothing short of a miraculous transformation. You know, these stories, sometimes we keep to ourselves because we feel like it's too difficult to share. But it would be a beautiful thing for us to be able to show each other how God and Jesus in spirit has has, has bound together our broken hearts. We're going to share that with each other. But there's more, right? Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, one of the greatest um, imageries of sin in the Bible is that of uh, captivity, right? Slavery. Uh, and it's an apt imagery, isn't it? To think of sin uh, as being like a captor. Um, I mean, don't we ever feel powerless to change? Like we're under some kind of power? Don't you ever feel trapped in sin, like you're in prison? And when you desperately want to change you know, a thought pattern or a sinful behavior, and you just can't? And you feel like something is just kind of holding you, preventing you from that change. You know, we're held captive by, by so many things, isn't it? It could be small things. Like me, every night, you know, I'll get bored or I'm tired or a bit stressed out. And what do I do? I go to the kitchen. And then I open the fridge, right? And I look around, what is there to eat, right? And I know I shouldn't because, you know, late night snacking is the worst, especially when it's chocolate, biscuits, fried chicken wings, that's been my nameless craze, right? Fried chicken wings. I've got to deep fry it. It's always got oil in it. So I can't resist, even though it takes like 10 minutes to heat up and then fry and then eat. And then the, the, the regret and the guilt afterwards, I still do it, right? That, that deep fryer is like my prison. <clears throat> but it's, it could be more serious things than that, right? That's a small thing, but it's, it helps us captive. But there's bigger things that hold us captive. Our, our, our thought life, our, our emotional health, our depression, our anxiety, our fears of many kinds, they feel like, they just trap us and they hold us. I mean, we can't get out of it. Or, of course, there's worse things like sinful behaviors that we just find so hard to change. Lust, greed, anger, grumbling and complaining, and so many more that you know what you struggle with. You know, Christ has come to free us from these things. Right, it may not feel like that sometimes, but let me explain to you how you can know for sure that it's happening. Right, it may not feel like you're free, but let me show you for sure that it's happening. 
Right? We're no longer held captive under the judgment of sin. That's number one, right? We're, we're no longer held under the captivity of sin's judgment, of sin's penalty. Right? In a way, sin uh, is met with a penalty that kind of imprisons us. But because of the death of Jesus Christ, because he is our suffering servant who has conquered sin's penalty, we are no longer under the imprisonment of the judgment of sin. We're also no longer under the controlling power of sin. Romans 6 says this about being united with Christ by faith. We know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, this is us now, right? In the now and not yet, we still experience the presence of sin. We still have to fight against sin. But the reality is that its controlling power over us, its decisive rule over us is gone. In Christ, we have been set free in such a way that it's actually possible for us to choose not to sin. Transformation is possible now. Now, as a pastor, one of the best things in my job is to be able to see firsthand this transformation happening in people's lives. And some of you have been in church long enough to be able to experience this as well, right? To be able to know people from the way they used to be and to see the amazing transformation in their lives, to see how they were such hopeless sinners, right? People you thought would never change. And then years later, the transformation has just been amazing, Right, the stories that we have, we have seen and heard, maybe the stories in our own lives that we can tell about how the power of sin has been removed and that we're growing and changing. That is worth sharing. I want you to do a research project. Right? I mean, I could go and tell you stories for the next half an hour, but I prefer for you to go and do the investigations for yourself. Maybe you can share your story about how you've seen the power of sin being taken away and, and, and sin being overcome in your life. And maybe you can ask each other about the stories to tell. Now, there's so much more I could say about Jesus' fulfillment, right, of these, just these three verses. I could talk about how he brings uh, in God's favor and vengeance, but we'll talk about that more next week. I could say heaps about how he brings comfort and gladness to those who mourn, uh, joy to those who are faint in spirit, and how he establishes the broken and the weak into solid rocks, oaks of righteousness. But I think you can see for yourself, how to work it out, right? As you read through these three verses and see what Jesus has come to do to transform us, I think you can work it out. What I want to say in closing is this, right? Like Israel in Isaiah 56 to 64, we live in the time of the now and the not yet. But unlike Israel, Jesus Christ, the spirit-filled conqueror, has come, right? In our struggles, and even in our frustrations at our untransformed lives, let us never fail to see the transformation that has happened. Right? For the pessimists here, there is reason to be optimistic. We have already seen how Jesus has brought transformation into our lives. And if you haven't seen that, then maybe you haven't looked hard enough. But if you're a genuine believer, the Spirit of God dwells within you. I'm certain that you have a story to tell of the transformative power of the Spirit of God in our lives, given to us by Jesus Christ. And I'm certain 
that he will continue to bring about the transformation in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. That even though as we read through these nine chapters, and they, they are difficult to understand. And in a way, they are, they're full of dis- despair and discouragement as your people living between their salvation from Babylon and waiting for the new heavens and the, and the new earth struggle so much as if they weren't saved at all. But we thank you for the promise of the Spirit-filled conqueror who has come. We thank you that Jesus opened a scroll to these very words and said that your words, the prophecy of the Spirit-filled one who brings victory, has been fulfilled in him. That through his life, death, and resurrection, we have forgiveness. We have transformative power of your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so we thank you that as we reflect back on our, on our Christian lives, through all the frustrations and, and failings, we can also see such victory, such transformation. And as we look forward uh, to the weeks and months and years ahead, we know for sure that you'll continue to do your great work in us in transforming us to be more like your son. Fill us with hope and rejoicing, we pray in Jesus' name.